It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to a glorious section of the Word of God, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What a glorious time it's been to work through this majestic chapter in the Scripture together. And today we find ourselves on the summation of it all. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through verse 39. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the very words of the living God. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, let us pray. What a glorious privilege it is to pray to You, O God, based on what You tell us in Your Word. We are a people in Christ of Your love. Your eternal love. Your unchanging love. Your relentless love. Your sovereign and saving love. May we never forget it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there is no separation from the love of Christ Jesus. Now and forever. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. May be seated. As a Christian, if you are not thankful, you are the reason. Sounds blunt, because it is. And yet, relentlessly in the Bible, that is the message. In fact, in the New Testament, it teaches us, and it's reflective of what's in the Old Testament, that one of the main goals of faith in Christ, practically in our lives, 
is to sever thankfulness and joy from your immediate circumstances. Let me put it to you this way. Your joy cannot be in Jesus and dependent on your circumstances at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. Now, as we have seen in Romans 8, in this amazing section that lifts us up to the heights of the grace of God, beginning in eternity past, extending into eternity future, that the believer goes through all of the same things that everyone else goes through. That the believer gets the terminal diagnosis. That the believer has a child who dies. That the believer, as we talked about of the tragic situation in Texas, is sometimes worshiping in a church and slaughtered. There is nothing that anyone else in life goes through that the believer is exempt from. The believer knows pain and difficulty and heartache just as everyone else does. And yet the believer experiences all those things as a child of God. Think about it. Why would we think we are exempt when our faith rests in the perfect Son of God who was crucified? And yes, resurrected. A child of God who can absolutely call God Father. In fact, with the same intimate language of Jesus Himself, Abba, Father. As a child of God who can call God the Son, our elder brother. As a child of God, who can refer to God the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. The One who indwells us and makes Jesus real to us and works in our lives so much so that when we say, Abba, Father, we can say it with believing lips, knowing that it's true. Now Romans 8 is very clear that we groan because of the pains that we face in a fallen world. And it's also very clear that the creation itself groans. This is not the way it should be, but the believer as a child of God knows that this is not the way it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And even the Holy Spirit Himself is groaning for us. Now get this. There is no escapism here. This is not empty sentimentality. This is not a Hallmark movie. This faces down all of the real, painful, gut-wrenching, overwhelming stuff and says, You are right to groan. If you did not groan in a fallen world, it would be an act of unbelief. The creation itself groans. The Holy Spirit groans 
for us. But as we groan, as followers of Jesus, we groan as a people who know sovereign family love, and the family is the family of God, and the love is from, rooted in eternity past, and extends to eternity future. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher, said, Nothing has had a greater effect on the minds of thoughtless men than the continued thankfulness of Christians. Thankfulness. Something that we are to work at. Something that we are to strive for, grasp at. Not something that just happens to us but something that we must pound in our minds because of the truth of who we are as the children of God. Thankfulness, the very foundation of our evangelistic witness. Never forget the first church I ever pastored, there was an older guy, high school dropout, ordinary guy by every outside looking in way of evaluating, lived in a modest home, door-to-door salesman, Hard worker his whole life. Then in his early 70s, cancer ravaged his body. And this guy never lost the gleam in his eye about the Gospel. And he told everybody how thankful he was for his life. And I'm doing his funeral and a man comes up at the funeral and grabs me literally by my suit and says, I don't know what he has that allows him to face cancer like that, but I've got to have it. And I told him about Jesus and he came to faith. Thankfulness. The power of it all. That when somebody looks at your life, they know how hard it is to go through the stuff that we all go through. And yet they see the difference. You see, thankfulness is far more important than the countless lesser things that we so focus our lives on. Thankfulness is so much more important than natural gifts and ability and intellect and credentials and all of that other stuff that so much of us are so focused on as being so important, all of it falls away and pales in comparison to the simple life lived believing the Gospel is true and therefore thankful no matter what. Thankfulness in the Scripture is always tied to security. The only way to be thankful in a world like this is to have an anchor that transcends this world. That anchor is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Without it, we are all fearful, worried, guilty. We feel condemned because we don't know how to escape the problem that we're in. And we wonder whether there's any love that transcends our present existence. And we often feel like we're in it alone. 
Then we come to Romans 8. And He faces all that stuff down. And He ties us to the Gospel in ways that are unbelievable. And in 8.31, the first part, there is the summation here that begins with this foundational question. What then shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things? Well, it's certainly referring back to the, the previous section when he says, and who, that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. But beyond that, it's referring back to the entirety of Romans 8, and really the entire uh, book of Romans from beginning in chapter 1 to now in chapter 8. These things, this gospel, this ability to be declared righteous and to have peace with God that we are sinners, knowing that we are justified and knowing that those who are justified are ultimately glorified. It's the whole sweep of everything which we've identified as life that is eternal, adoption into the family of God, seeing the glory of God, living with purpose, and now lies being rooted in eternal love. But it's even beyond that. It is the whole of redemptive history is telling us a message of God's relentless covenant love. The Old Testament keeps saying that God in His covenant love is abounding in love. 1 John 4.8 tells us God is love. God's secure, unchanging love for His people. This is what matters. These things. Paul summarizes Romans 8 with a final crescendo of gospel love. I'll remind you that Romans 8 begins with a declaration that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with the declaration that there's no separation from the love of Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in between, it explains the Father's purposeful love, the Son's cross love, and the Spirit's adopting love for His people. The entire triune God at work Why? To demonstrate the sovereign and eternal and unchanging love of God. Do you believe it? This is our story. All of the other stuff is footnotes. Some of us just read the footnotes. The footnotes are to help urge you on for the shape of the story. The story is God's eternal love for His people. Look at how He explains it. Beginning in verse second part of verse 31 down through verse 34, the first thing we see is the, fo- the work of Christ for us. He, he shapes this by these rhetorical questions that He supplies the the answer to, but they are rhetorical questions that go from the hard to the easier. If God is like this, if God has done this, why are you worried about this? 
That's the way it works. And he shapes it in such a way that he addresses the fears that we so often have. What we allow to creep in and overshadow the story of God's love, these footnotes that steal our joy, that take away our thanksgiving. And the first one is this. Fearful and worried? This is true of you and you are fearful and worried? Look with me in the second part of verse 31. Down through verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things, meaning all things we need? Do you get it? The if, the then, the greater, and the lesser? If God is for us, for us thunders throughout this section. For us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, all kinds of people can be against us, as He explains. But it's who can be against us that ultimately matters, and the answer is nobody. Nobody. God is for us. That is not an empty platitude or an abstraction to distract us from the real world. It's a concise summary of the Gospel. God is for us. Even when we weren't for us. Christ died for the ungodly. God is for us. How do we know that? Romans 1-8. through How do we know that? Redemptive history. How do we know that? The character of God. How do we know that? A bloody cross. That symbol of sovereign and defined love. Who can be against us if God is for us? Meaning... Eternally against us, nobody. This speaks to the general opposition that we face in this world. There are plenty of people who raise themselves up against us, but none of them can overshadow who is for us. How do we know that? He did not spare His own Son. Any other opposition is ultimately irrelevant. Why would we believe He will not graciously give us all things? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. If He gave His Son for us, what will He withhold that we need? Nothing. After all, this is family. This is family love. That's what Romans 8 has been laboring to say that is so often missed. Fear and worry? 
I always teach my kids, especially when they're younger, hey, listen, if, I'm, if we're somewhere and I'm not afraid, you've got no reason to be afraid. If I ever am afraid and start running, take off. Because you're in big trouble. But if I'm not afraid, just follow me. Well, I sometimes am afraid. But God is not. Fear and worry, that's the battleground of living out our faith. I think oftentimes we sort of give ourselves permission to be fearful and worried people as, as though, yeah, you know, we got the gospel over here, but this is real life. No, the gospel is real life. Apply it. Live it. Fight to believe it each and every day. But he, but he goes from this issue of general opposition to the heart of uh, the reality that we can be declared righteous, and that is legal opposition. Look with me at verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen ones, those whom it, it, He justifies? He says next, it is God who justifies. Now, now get this. If God says, you are righteous in My Son, and you are free, what does it matter that somebody else says you're guilty, you're worthless, you're condemned, you're a nobody? What does it matter? It doesn't. When the high court is spoken, the lower court rulings do not matter. What do the judgment of lesser judges do when God has spoken? Do you see that? Could I remind you that the very meaning of the name Satan is accuser? The meaning of the name. His mission is to accuse the brethren. So if you live in false guilt and condemnation, you're living out His purpose. Now there are certainly things that a believer should feel guilty about, but guess what? You're in the family. You confess your sins and you stand up to a God who receives you before you even come. It's settled on the cross. What you're trying to do by your confession is not to earn your place in the family. You're trying to restore fellowship. It's one of the reasons why every time I discipline my children, I tell them, I love you no matter what. Whether whether, uh, you do this or you don't do this, I love you, that's settled. We're trying to keep our relationship close here in this family. That's the issue here. That's settled. When we live in false guilt, if you feel guilty about something the Bible does not expressly say is wrong, that's false guilt. Satan trades in it. You never do enough. You're you're, you're busy, you focus on your family, you say you can't make that meal for somebody. I can't believe you won't take your time to do that. Well, okay, let's say, okay, you're busy with your family, you make that meal for somebody, I can't believe you would neglect your family. Let's say you do that, you make the meal, you spend time with your family, you're running around. Why don't you do this more often? 
You're selfish. There's all kinds of needs you're not meeting. See, that's, that's false guilt. When we embrace that and we live in this condemnation, we're living out the purpose of the evil one, not the purpose of Christ. He is the accuser. Nobody can declare against us a charge that matters for eternity in Christ. Now, there are plenty of people who profess Christ who are not in Christ. That's a lesson for another day. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? The word literally means to pass judgment on. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, the seat of authority? Who indeed is interceding for us? Do you hear the for us and the way it keeps showing up? Who is to condemn? By the way, the word used for condemn here is a particular word that has a decidedly negative connotation. This is, this is a condemnation of, of actual guilt. It is a negative reality. Who can pass judgment on you and declare you guilty forever? The answer is, Listen, not for the one whom Christ Jesus died for. More than that, He was raised for. The one who has faith in Him, the Bible says, is justified. And by the way, He's at the right hand of God. It's not as though the one who is justified in Christ has this secret where they're fooling anybody. The one who died for them and raised for them is at the right hand of the Father. Yes, we know that they're sinners. But the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is sufficient. And it says not only that, not only is He in the place of highest honor and authority who has declared us righteous in Him, He is interceding for us. You see, the for us throughout this section is thunderous. It is to shape our lives. Jesus Himself interceding for us. The Spirit groaning for us. The Father's purpose lived out in us. The love of Christ that saves us. So here's the issue. The accuser or the advocate? Where is your faith? Who do you trust? Not who you would fill out a questionnaire and say you trust. But who you trust on a daily basis. Do you wake up breathing the air of Gospel freedom? Do you have this sort of liberty to have joy and thankfulness? even in the midst of the press of life? You do if you believe the Advocate. This is not something that just sort of naturally happens. This is the battleground of our sanctification. But he goes from the work of Christ for us 
to the love of Christ for us. And by the way, he spends a lot of time there. The final rhetorical question he lands on. This is the most personal. And to be honest with you, it's the hardest for us to believe. Some of us can believe a distant courtroom. But we have a hard time believing God loves us. Do you see that? Some of you you live as though, yeah, God saved me, but He doesn't really like me. He doesn't love me. That's a lie. If you are in Christ, He loves you with the love in which the Father loves God the Son. Look with me here. This final rhetorical question transitions from the work of Christ for us to the love of Christ for us. And we are to be shaped by this reality. The accuser is a liar. The advocate is our elder brother. And that frees us from when we feel unloved and lonely. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's really the foundational question of faith. Who shall divide us from the love of Christ? The central question of our Christian life. The ground of all of our fears, worries, false guilt, condemnation, is wondering whether or not, in reality, we are unloved. And then he mentions things that come to all Christians. Look at what he says there. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, shall tribulation, shall the pressures that you face, shall distress the hardships that you know, the outward afflictions and the inward distress, shall persecution, which in some measure comes to all who say openly that Jesus is Lord, shall those things separate you from the love of Christ? No. And then he mentions things that come to some Christians. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, Our sword, famine, hunger, nakedness, poverty, danger, no comfort, no ease, no no sense of outward safety conceived of in human terms. Sword, some face martyrdom. Other than the sword, Paul had faced all of these at the time he writes this. Paul's testimony is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger. Of course, those are the footnotes. The main body of the story tells something else, and that's why the Apostle Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. Look at verse 36. As it is written, by the way, he quotes here Psalm 44, 22. 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This was probably Paul's life verse. I can see Paul being thrown out of a town, burying in his body the marks of serving Christ, having his own kinsmen turn his back on him, and quoting to himself, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And I have no doubt that his mind also goes to Isaiah 53, 7 about the suffering serpent. A servant. Serpent. I repent. That's heresy. The suffering servant. The one who was led as a sheep to the slaughter, but for his people, and he saw the fruit of his labors. You see, Paul is is fixing this in his mind, and he wants other believers to fix it in their mind. Not that all of us will be killed, but the world thinks they're taking us down a path to say, ha, look, it's not true. Look at what you're going through. Look at the way you're suffering. If this were true, you wouldn't go through it. And yet we do. And by the way, Psalm 44 starts out talking about the exodus and God's redeeming work and God's deliverance. Meaning that this verse shows up in the midst of a God who shows His power and delivers His people. So going through this must be something that that God allows for greater purposes and it doesn't change the fact that He has delivered us. That's why Paul latches onto it right here. He says, this is what we're living. This has always been the story. God has has never come in, even though He has all power and removed us from all difficulty and suffering. No, rather, that's a part of the story of God's people. That's a part of the way God's covenant love is on display. Leon Morris puts it like this. Suffering and persecution are not mere evils which Christians must expect to endure as best they can. They are the scene of the overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. You get that? The persecutions and the sufferings are the scene of victory. So, when the guy who's a member of my church, this old, simple-seeming, door-to-door salesman was believing the Gospel with joy as cancer was taking his body. And somebody comes to say, I want what he has. It is the scene of victory. It's when God's triumph is on display. His power even over the grave. Because here's the truth. God used that to make sure that this man will triumph over the grave. And the man who was dying with thankfulness that he was going to triumph over the grave triumphs over the grave too. All of this is the scene of victory as long as we cling to the Gospel. As long as we live with this sense of thankfulness because we are children of God. God is our Father. Christ is our elder brother. The Spirit is the Spirit of adoption, making our family uh, relations so real to us on a daily basis. Look at verse 37. No. The, the, The word here is that strong word of contrast in the Greek. No, it can be translated but, but it's an adversative sense, so no is good. No, in all these things could be translated, in the midst of all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are hyper-Nike. 
That, that word Nike, Nikea, which is, means conqueror, victor. We are hyper victors. We are hyper conquerors in the midst of what? In the midst of all these explained, in the midst of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, in the midst of it all, we are the hyper-victors. It's just simply the way the victory is displayed as it unfolds that will one day be in a new heavens and a new earth. Then notice what it says next. For I am sure, the word is convinced, Fixed, unshakable. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Now, I was telling the staff this morning, you get some commentators here, and they take each one of those things out and and write five paragraphs on it. That's stupid. That's not the point. The point as you go through that list is for you to feel it. The the point is the last phrase, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, let me list these extremes in both directions, and then let me write a blank and say, you write whatever you want on that blank. And whatever you write in that blank, if you're in Christ, will not separate you from the love of Christ. Anything! Anything. It's amazing. That's what he says next. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. All of those things we say, yeah, but they're repudiated in the gospel. The anything else in all creation. Is even our own sense of which we get in our own way. That love will transform us ultimately. That we are being shaped into the image of Christ and ultimately delivered to be glorified. It's all opposite ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Nothing will ever separate the believer from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can ever break up this forever family. What security! That's there to change the way you live Monday. And Tuesday. And Wednesday. Thursday. Friday. And Saturday. And Sunday when we come here to remind ourselves of it all again and anew. One of my favorite historical figures is Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was talking about thankfulness, and he says, our emotions are an inside job. That's far more true than Teddy Roosevelt ever knew himself. Because when he says that, he's not thinking about the reality of the indwelling Spirit that is pointing us to Christ that when we yield to it, Nothing ever looks the same again. And it allows us, as the Apostle Paul says, I am determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. It allows us to take every thought in obedience to obey Christ. It is an inside job. But here's what I fear. 
we think that thankfulness is something that sort of happens to us based on external circumstances. Well, it is based on one external circumstance. A bloody cross with the Son of God on it and an empty tomb. But beyond that, a thousand times no. Every word in the New Testament is trying to urge you that faith means living on the basis of this Gospel truth in the midst of the groanings of this present age. As a Christian, if you're not thankful, you are the reason. God is not. The Savior is not. The Holy Spirit is not. Fearful and worried, guilty and condemned, unloved and lonely, makes no sense in light of a God who is for us, who has justified us, and who says nothing you fill in the blank will separate us from the love of Christ. Now let me be clear in a way that Paul has been clear. That doesn't mean that living that out is easy. It's not supposed to be. And that's why when others look at your life and see something different, the first words out of your mouth ought to be Jesus. And every day, it would be a good habit for you to take this section of Scripture, put it by your bed, and read it before your feet hit the floor. And to read it before you go to sleep at night. For this portion of Scripture to shape every thought that you have. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no separation from the love of Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those truths will be true for all eternity. Let's pray.